0: I'd like to introduce our new podcast series called Raw, where I get the opportunity to have discussions with people about topics that might be a little awkward or a little uncomfortable, but are discussions that should be had. As you probably know, I have zero issues in asking, quote, a stupid question, uh, because I have a thirst for learning and listening to stories. And I really feel that I'm in a unique position of having a platform to be able to share these learnings with all of you. So Raw is about starting or continuing a conversation, but true to Wits Up podcast form, I also wanna get to know the person behind these conversations as well. So what can you expect? I guess expect some raw, honest, authentic, and maybe at times brutal conversations, but you'll also be introduced to some fascinating people along the way. I hope that you get something out of these discussions because I can guarantee you that I certainly will be. This has been a long time coming. I'm very excited to welcome to the Wits Up podcast, Dr. Shauna Gold. Welcome.
1: Thank you, thank you. Yes, it has been a long time coming. I've been looking forward to this.
0: <laughs> I've had tech issues. I've had neck issues. You've got two kids running around. It's just been, the world has been conspiring against us. Uh, That's all right.
1: We still win, though. We still totally. win, though. We're still here.
0: Well, I feel like the buildup has been great. So this is, I mean, people can expect great things from this chat.
1: <laughs> absolutely. The harder you fight to get there, the more reward, right? <laughs> totally. Uh, absolutely.
0: Um, now I'm I've been thinking a lot about this episode and figuring out how do I introduce introduce this woman? Because your your CV or your resume is um it's quite impressive. Uh, it's lengthy. Oh, well, there's just so many things about you just on paper and what, what I've seen and heard. Um I, I don't even know how to sum it up. I'm just gonna go through a couple of things and let, then we'll get stuck into it. But your an educator, an assistant provost, which to be honest, I didn't know what that meant uh, because things are different in Australia. So, w- what is a provost exactly?
1: Ah, uh, great question, great question. <laughs> a, a provost is someone who plays second to the president um, of a university, and they're usually the uh, the chief academic officer. So, they're responsible for the quality of teaching. Uh, the quality of the classroom um really overseeing a lot as it pertains to the faculty members and the professors on a campus and so i assist our our provost by really focusing on the diversity and inclusion needs of our faculty members and so um yeah we're we're second we're second in command over there
0: right okay so i imagine that's probably similar to assistant principal but it seems like you've got many other i don't know titles underneath that as well like it's um absolutely. Yeah, it, Yeah. that's, yeah. Um, okay, so you're also the CEO or the founder of Gold Speaks, mother mm-hmm. of two, Trey and Kendrick.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. My my little ones who are nine and six and they're uh, budding swimmers, which is awesome for a triathlon mom. Um, yeah. yeah, they are, and, and it's been so cool now that we're um, officially into summer, even though we have lots of COVID restrictions, but um, I think we've been to the pool like every day. <laughs> so uh, oh, nice. to break up the the monotony of working from home, but then forcing yourself up and away from the desk to actually do something fun and, and active.
0: It's super hard when you work from home, isn't it? You just, because your computer's just there, you just keep going oh, back to it. Oh
1: my gosh, no boundaries at all. None. Mm. Especially since uh, since the first week of June or so for me, but I think it's gone on through the entire pandemic where um, the first week of June, I think I sat down on my computer most mornings at 7 a.m. and probably didn't get up until I forced myself to get up at like 7.30 or 8 p.m. Um, I would take a few breaks here and there where I'd take the boys out on their scooters or their bikes outside around the block for a bit and then come back. But it's been tough because you're right, there's really no boundaries. And um, I have a position where pre-COVID, I had about an hour's commute to work one direction. Um, and so given that at least that created some boundaries of I know I have to leave at this time. I know I have to get there at this time. I know I have to leave work at a specific time. And so it at least put some bookends on the work. But with Wi Fi, it's like all the boundaries mm-hmm. just crumbled. And so, you know, you can start getting emails early morning, go through the late evening. You almost have to block off on your calendar when you're just not going to work, period. <laughs> and so um, yeah. that, that has been a real struggle for me. Um, because I do love my work. I love what I do, but I also know that I need to find balance. And you know, now I don't have the excuse of, oh, well, I don't have time to work out because I have to be on the road at a certain time. The bike is staring me in the face every <laughs> doggone day. And I just have to stop and get up and go get on it. So yeah, that that's the challenge.
0: Yeah. So at uh, where you're at, you're just outside of Washington, right?
1: Yeah, I am. So I'm, a am close to Annapolis. So anyone that's flying into Baltimore would be flying into Thurgood Marshall, Baltimore, Washington airport. And so I'm probably about 20 minutes away from that airport. So I'm um, in what we call the DMV area, the DC, Maryland, Virginia area. And I've been in this area for 11, now going into 12 years.
0: Yeah, right. And are you, are you allowed to ride outside there at the moment with COVID restrictions?
1: Yes. Fortunately, oh, cool. we are able to ride, thank goodness. And we have lots of trail systems in this area. Um, I do like to go out to the Western Maryland Rail Trail because um, I'm, I'm a lazy cyclist, so I like flat and fast, of course. I know some people <laughs> like to be climbers, but I like flat and fast. Um, but I think what's interesting though, is that so many of the pedestrians also know about these trail systems. So, um, given the heat and people on foot, even the runners, you know, you have to get out there relatively early to have a really nice ride. Uh, but we do have lots of systems here to to ride on if you don't want to ride the streets, which I personally don't feel comfortable riding the streets, but, um, we do have lots of, uh, trail systems.
0: Right. Okay. Um, so, all right. So the 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 way that we uh found you is because obviously you're a cyclist but you're a triathlete so that's how we that's how we found you um mm-hmm. <laughs> out there um yeah yeah, so you, yeah. you're you're at h- half distance Yes. Half distance. Um, I
1: would love to have done my first full this year, but COVID had some other plans. Um, So um, I'm actually very close to Cambridge, Maryland, which is the home of Ironman, Maryland, as well as Eagleman 70.3. And Uh um, given that, I mean, literally we can get out to the course in uh, probably under an hour. um, And that makes it extremely convenient uh, to make it out there and, and train and to race. And so, uh, yeah, I finished up my third half iron last October at Ironman, North Carolina. Uh, and so, you know, given that, I think that's, I, I never intended to be at the half iron distance, much less considering a full, um, I'm not a lifetime athlete by any stretch of the imagination. I actually found running maybe, I want to say seven years ago, maybe eight years ago, um, as I was trying to get off some post-pregnancy weight for my oldest son, Trey. And nothing was working. You know, I was already very heavy when I became pregnant with him, and it just went crazy. It went out of proportion. Um, I was well over the 200 range, probably around 230, 240. And after I had him, I just found my kind of therapy with running. And so from there, I ran and ran and ran. And then almost three years later, I found out I was pregnant with my youngest son, Kendrick. And with Kendrick, what was very interesting, of course, I had never gone through a pregnancy as a runner. So I was like, oh, I found this passion, this thing that works, but now I can't do it as much. And so I made it to about six months um, with Kendrick. And at a certain point, the baby just bounces way too much on your (laughs) bladder. It's like, no, this is not going to work for me anymore um and so my uh my doctor my OBGYN said well why don't you consider swimming now mind you this is a person who was also a multiple time iron man and knew what we call our 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 mommy language for athletes it's like okay you tell me to go short distance I need to know mileage as an athlete like can I go three can I go five what can I do here and um my OBGYN said why don't you take up swimming? And I'm looking at her like, uh, I don't know how to swim. Let me figure out what I should do about this. Um, I thought about learning how to swim, but it just never had taken a priority. I didn't learn as a kid. And so my training partner, who is actually um, the godmother to my sons, (laughs) she probably laughed the day she opened up her email. I registered us both for beginner swim lessons. And I said, okay, if I'm gonna drown, you're gonna at least be there with me. So we're going, All right, we're <laughs> that's it. And so I registered us both and she was what we call a vacation swimmer. Um, you know, She wasn't gonna drown necessarily but she wasn't gonna be quite athletic. <laughs> and so right. um, we both needed to learn some technique. And so I learned how to swim while I was very pregnant with my youngest son. And I actually swam, I think it was about 1600, I'm sorry, 600 the morning before Kendrick was born. Um, I'm a very early riser. And so we had a swim at probably five in the morning, usually uh, get dressed and go straight to work. And on my way to work, I'm standing in line uh, to get my breakfast and, uh, Us mommies, you know, I felt a little trickle, and usually a trickle isn't that bad, but when the little trickle becomes a big trickle, that's a problem. (laughs) Um, And and I didn't know what was going on because I had my oldest son by C-section. So I I was like, this is all new to me. What's going on here? Oh, wow. Okay. And and so by 11 o'clock, my youngest son, Kendrick, was born, and I still had not even taken off my road ID off of my wrist because I still had it on for my workout. So, oh, my God. Yes. Yeah, sw- swimming became a big deal. And I actually did my first sprint triathlon about three months after he was born.
0: Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And it, it, it was I'm not going to say it was pretty. It was a pool swim. Um, I ran and and uh, biked around uh, in Baltimore, <laughs> <And> so, <laughs> um, which is very hilly, by the way, for people that don't know much about Baltimore terrain. And uh, yeah, I did it three months later and it was one of the best things ever. So my, probably my proudest picture is a picture of me um, holding my youngest son, Kendrick, when he was three months old, standing in transition, getting my stuff set up. So yeah,
0: three months. Oh, That is amazing. Congrats. That is awesome. Amazing
1: or ridiculous. I don't know which one, but yeah, it's, I continued to train as long as I could while I was pregnant, but um, I was down for about maybe six or seven weeks. And I kind of cheated and snuck out on my bike when I just couldn't take it anymore in the house and decided to, to register for, for my first sprint. Yep.
0: Wow. So you, yeah, you truly fell in love with, with triathlon. <laughs> Exactly,
1: I did. Oh my goodness, addictive, and you know, I I think what's great about it for me is that um, it's and this is not to downplay mental health at all because I'm very serious about people and their mental health. Um, yeah. But for me, you know, and lots of mommies out there, baby blues are very real. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had the baby blues after my youngest son, but then also my uh, grandfather who basically raised me as a child. He passed away when, when Kendrick was in the NICU, probably um, 11 days into the NICU. So oh, literally, I, uh, we finally got to bring Kendrick home from NICU, brought him home, left him with my mother-in-law. And at the time, my husband and I left and went uh, down to Southern Virginia to bury my grandfather. And so after that, you know, trying to process all of that, I really processed it by training. And what I loved about that process was that, you know, those couple of hours out of the day took my mind off of those things. Um, but it also created a great routine that I still keep to this day, even though I feel like mentally and emotionally, I feel much better. Uh, but mm-hmm. physically, just getting that uh, consistency in place was really important for me. So yeah, great coping mechanism for me. Um, at a time when I wasn't really seeking out therapy, I, I thought it was fantastic for me.
0: Wow. What what a story. I. I- It sounds like, I mean, we were talking um, before I hit record and you were discussing your two kids and how uh, how different, sorry, they are. Um, One one being the fighter, uh, which, uh, sorry, Kendrick was the younger one, right?
1: That's right. That's right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Kendrick being the fighter. Um, But it sounds like that spirit definitely comes from you.
1: <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. Yeah. I, you know, I think with with Kendrick, he is um, and I'll I may have to send you some pictures. Maybe you can use those later, but um my pictures of my sons, my youngest is like my twin. You know, he looks exactly like me. Um and I think what's really interesting is that um, you know, your children hopefully take the best things from you. Um and so Kendrick is very much of a fighter. He's gonna fight to the very end. He will yeah. um do his best. He doesn't really want a whole lot of help, which can Hurt, hurt or hinder you. Um, yep. <laughs> he is very much a fighter. Um, my oldest son, Trey, he is um, very, I, I think he's going to be an engineer one day, right? Because he's one that really can take nothing and create something out of it. So um, a couple of days ago, I actually posted on my social media where I, I heard him kind of tearing tape and ripping up paper and cutting things up. And I'm like, what in the world is going on in that room? He sounds like <laughs> constructing a whole building in there. Um, and I went in and he had created this life-size um, Minecraft character from something he had been watching on YouTube kids. I didn't give him any supplies. I didn't give him, I, I think I gave him a roll of tape and that's about it. <laughs> and then wow. I you know, he comes out and he has this life-size figure that's almost as tall as him. And he made it out of stuff. I didn't even give him the supplies to do it. He just made this up out of his own mind. And so I think what's really good about him is that he's resourceful um, yep. and you know, that's, you definitely have to be that as a triathlete, <laughs> you have to be yep. that as a woman, as a mom, you know, all of those roles, you kind of oftentimes have to make something out of nothing, which I think is important. And so I, I hope he gets that for me and keeps that. Yeah, uh,
0: yeah, that's amazing. I, I was uh, watching something the other day and they, I was actually watching RuPaul's Drag Race. I tell everyone oh, yeah. on the podcast, I am obsessed <laughs> with that show. I just love it so much. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. But they were interviewing the mother of, um, I think it was Naomi Smalls, one of the contestants. And they mm-hmm. said, you know, what um, what do you think you've taught your, your son? And the mother turned around and said, well, I think the more important thing to sort of uh, show is what he has taught me I thought that I was giving all these tools and guidance but he has actually Mm -hmm. guided me and given me all these insights that he doesn't know that he has been but he's been shaping me for all these years and I was like wow that's such an interesting way of Mm -hmm. looking at it Um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah how do you think your kids have shaped you
1: Oh, my goodness. I could go on and on all day. I, mean, <laughs> I like a whole book right there, really. Um, well, you know, for me, my, my approach is a little different. And I know for for some, depending on your background and culture, it may even be offensive to say. Um, but I'm, I'm an only child. I was very much raised as one to um, go after their career and be very focused on education. And that's probably why I went all the way with my education, And so, you know, children were not central to my identity as a woman, as a wife, any of that. Um, It was more so, you know, live your life, do the best that you can to really make a a nice, comfortable life for yourself. And if children come, that's icing on an already good cake, if you will. And so, you know, that's when so when I had the boys, what I thought was so fascinating about having them was that, um, yes, absolutely. It definitely makes you less selfish in many ways. Um, but it also, it's like holding up a mirror to your own face (laughs) when it comes to certain things that you do. Like I even think about this on a regular basis where my sons may do something and I'm thinking to myself, Oh, I would do the exact same thing. And now I'm criticized. You know, it's like have a temper tantrum because your friend didn't, uh, didn't respond back to you. Well, mommy, you would probably do that too as an adult. So let's, you know, self-examination here. Um, and, and that's what I really do appreciate is that they they reflect you, and I think it's so profound that they hold a mirror up to you, and they truly do make you kind of vibrate on a higher level. You have to be not necessarily a different person, but you do have to be a better person because you, know, you can't live your life as a parent saying, uh, do as I say and not as I do. That only goes but so far. Mm. Children are very observant. They see what's going on. They see how you behave. They see how you don't behave. Um, one of the things I really adore about children is that they – they see what you do, but they also see what you don't do. So, you know, Mm. if I knock over spilled milk, well, do I have a tantrum or am I cool and say, oh, it happens all the time. Let's clean it up and we'll get something else to drink. How am I responding? And so, you know, I think that's what's super important about being a parent is that, um, you know, I I think, you know, some of us come from a generation where it wasn't as, um, wasn't as, I don't want to use the word soft. That's not the the right word, but not as aware or not as emotional. And so Mm -hmm. it's more like do as I say, and that's it. And, you know, you're kind of furniture and we move you around and we pretty much predict what your life is going to be like. And Mm -hmm. now we're in a phase, and especially for me as an educator, someone who understands teaching and learning and, you know, being a parent is nothing but teaching and learning all day long. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, for me, I'm always aware of, you know, what are the boys taking from me? Exactly. Mm -hmm. Good, bad or indifferent. Um, what are some things where, you know, you can be honest and say, hey, mommy made a mistake. I want you to do better than me and I'm going to do better, too, um, mm-hmm. because they're they're really little adults. You know, <laughs> they're they're little yeah. adults that have minds and personalities and experiences and they say they soak up everything like a sponge. And so, you know, one one of the most profound things that my oldest son said to me because um, he was recently diagnosed with ADHD um, and uh, it makes complete sense to me now because he's very much a planner and um, he can get a little bit anxious if there's not a plan in place. But if we need to adjust the plan, that's fine. But if there's no plan in place, he's like in meltdown mode. And I said to myself, oh my Lord, I need to go get myself tested for ADHD because that's me also. You know, I, I do the exact same thing. And so I thought one of the things that was powerful that he said to me one time was um, we were talking about plans or something for the weekend. And I said, Well, son, you know, if we can't do this, then we'll do that. And if we can't do that, then we'll consider a third plan. And yeah. he said to me, Mommy, do you always have backup plans? And I thought to myself, Absolutely, I always have backup plans. And so um, for him, after that conversation, I started noticing how he would also create these backup plans. So, you know, he would say, Well, mommy, you know, if we can't have popcorn, then can we have peanuts? Or if we can't have peanuts, then can can we have fruities? You know, he started then creating his own backup plans. And, you know, for me, I I don't want to make it sound like you're under a microscope, but your children are really soaking up everything about you. And so what does that mean about what you want to portray to them? And, you know, now I kind of understand, I know this can be a little bit of a gendered conversation, but when I hear... Uh, men say that, you know, my children forced me or required me to be better men. Um, I understand that from a woman's perspective or just a parental perspective that they really do call you to be a better person. And I think that's really important.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, and when you say that uh, they call you to to be a better person, uh, only if you're listening, right? I feel right. like yeah, absolutely it's, yeah it's really important to to stop and listen and sometimes that's hard because we're busy and we've got things to do uh but mm-hmm. yeah I think you nailed it when you said they um they are constantly teaching you and they are constantly we're constantly educating them whether it's consciously or subconsciously they're just they're mm. picking up everything it's fascinating from such a young age as well
1: yeah, absolutely. And I'm I'm trying to think of the name of the book that I read, but it was um, a book I read a few months ago um, that was specifically around communication with eye contact. And um, I think it was by, I can't remember, I think it was by Stephen Collins. I'll have to look it up for you. But what I think was really important about that book was that, you know, I realized that, you know, oftentimes I find myself, especially as a Black woman communicating to other Black women, Sometimes we can communicate with just a little glance, like what just happened here, or what's going on? (laughs) You know, you do this and I'll do that. There's some things that we can kind of communicate. And I think um, that is paralleled quite a bit, for example, with twins, you know, where or very close siblings where they can communicate in ways that others can't. And so with eye contact, I started using quite a bit of those skill sets with my sons because, you know, I wanted to have a type of intimacy with them as a mother that. No, we don't even need to use words to talk. I want to be clear on what I'm saying, but I, you don't need an entire, you know, State of the Union address to understand where mom's <laughs> coming from, you know. And um, and so I started really using some of those strategies in that book. And so my youngest has really been good at, um, and I I play with him quite a bit. I might give him this little stare with a frown, and he knows what I mean by that. If I stare with mm-hmm. him, stare with him with a frown, I look at him, and he knows I'm about to say. Kendrick, I love you, you know, almost angry. I love you, whether you like it or not. I love you. And so now we've gotten to this place where I do the little furrowed brow and the frown. And before I can even say it, he's like, I know, mommy, I love you too. You know, and so now we've gotten to this place where the eye contact is very important and it gets to a place where um, you have this heightened level of trust. Um, and I think that's extremely important for parents, especially now. I mean, we're at, we have this yeah. COVID backdrop now. And so, you know, children are feeling very, Um, uncomfortable because there's instability right now. They don't get to go to school and see their friends and so forth. Um, I even read this article in particular where um, children build forts around the house, which is normal for kids. Um, But now increasingly so because they want to be in this protected safe haven, given the COVID situation that's going on across the world. Um, And so now, you know, when I see my kids pulling out old sheets to build a fort, I don't say anything. I'm like, go for it, sons, have at it. Um, yeah. because they need a different level of communication. And sometimes I crawl into the fort with them to let them know that things are good. Um, but what are they teaching us? What are they showing us? I think it's very important to pay attention
0: to the lessons to be learned. Wow, that is so interesting. Wow. Um, now, I, I feel like we could just keep talking and going on so many tangents. Um, <laughs> I, I get yeah. I get that feeling from you. And obviously that's my bag as well. But Absolutely. uh <laughs> The, the, oh, I
1: found the book, by the way. Before you go, oh. on, I did find the book on my uh, shelf. It's called Face to Face, the Art of Human Connection. And it's by Brian Grazer. And it's a short little read. And it talks about um, he's a, I think he's a film producer. And he just talked about loving stories, just like you, Steph. Um, he talked about loving stories and how he continued to build rapport with people by having really great eye contact. So that, that's the name of the book I was trying to think of.
0: Oh, there you go. And, yes, obviously we did talk about how much I love listening to stories but also yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. We both didn't want to, because we, we're doing this obviously remotely, we both didn't want to turn off our video, but it's better for audio <laughs> because we exactly. wanted to see each other. We wanted to have that eye contact. It's hard. Absolutely. Yeah, it's kind of tough. Yep.
1: Uh, and, and, you know, the nonverbal cues are so important. And so I, I love that piece. And I don't want to uh, jump on the last word of what you say. But yeah, I love the the nonverbal clues there uh, that really help us to know how to respond to mm-hmm. folks yeah.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, everyone out there listening, just know that Shauna and I are both waving our arms around in the air, um, and yeah, making all of the gestures. That's for sure. We we
1: have we have already clarified our love for Italian culture, knowing that there's (laughs) lots of nonverbal communication. So we we have claimed that we are partially Italian, and we're gonna we need to go and see if we actually are. In fact, I think so. That would explain (laughs) a lot. That would explain a lot.
0: Okay, let's circle back to to one of the main reasons that we wanted to have this uh, this chat. Um, I mean, firstly, I wanted people to get to know you a little bit more. Um, how we uh, happened to find you, which was through the world of triathlon, which is one of the great things about the sport is that we seem to connect across the globe with dif- different people. Um, mm-hmm. But your your skill set, um, and I'm going to steal some of the words from your from your website. Uh, but being an educator and a speaker, you've, you've written down that you're approachable. You have this self deprecating humor and you're high octane. And I read those three sort of descriptive words about you. And I was like, this woman is just (laughs) like my, she's just my people. I just, I (laughs) cannot wait to speak to her. Um, and I feel like the second we logged on today, I was like, I feel like I could just ask you anything and you won't be offended. You will give some really honest answers, but you'll give them in a way that will um, really resonate with me and hopefully with our listeners. And, you know, we want to talk about diversity, um, inclusion and equality. And mm-hmm. right now with the Black Lives Matter, um, do we say Black Lives Matter movement? I feel like that's kind of underselling it. Y- y- like mm. I don't want it to be just a movement because I feel like that feels like it's just kind of for right now. I want this to be a everlasting thing
1: mhm- mhm-- Mm-hmm. well and you know I, I agree with you I think what's what's curious about the black lives matter movement um, is that I, I think we're going through black lives matter 2.0 right now um and you know we'll see you know more and more iterations depending on the the shape of the country and how things mm-hmm. move forward especially after a, a general election but yeah, I think you're right that it's it's almost uh minimizing it to say a movement because you know sometimes movements start and stop and I don't see a Black Lives Movement, a Black Lives Matter movement, ever stopping. Frankly, I think it might, you know, go in waves. Obviously, but I think you're right on target with that.
0: Yeah, and yeah, and that's why. Yeah, I don't know. I've I've obviously I've struggled to, you know, with my terminology, and that's one of the things I want to talk to you about different terminology mm. uh, mm-hmm. today, mm-hmm. Um, and and hopefully we'll get to everything, but. Um, one of the, and we discussed this again um, before we hit go on today's podcast re- recording, is one yeah. of the things I really liked about you is obviously you're approachable, but you use humour as a means of getting across a point. And um mm. obviously anyone who listens to our podcast knows that 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 works so well with me but h- how do you view that <laughs> how, like, Yeah. obviously it's this isn't just something that you flute it's something that you obviously are across and are very um uh, aware that it is a great ways of having these discussions that are quite frankly very raw can be awkward can be uncomfortable but somehow you manage to make it comfortable.
1: Mm, mm-hmm. Well, you know, I think, you know, I was just having that conversation about comfort earlier, and I'll get back to that part of your question. You know, I think what's important about these conversations is that they're hard. We we know that they're tough. Who really wants to sit around all day and talk about race and racist and race? You know, who really wants to yeah. do that? Very few people do because it really, you know, going back to my analogy with my sons, it really does Hold a mirror up to you and what you may be doing or may not be doing, and what that means as far as your contribution to society. So, you know, the people that I really adore and enjoy, in fact, um, most people who know me know that Dave Chappelle is my Mm -hmm. favorite, hands down favorite comedian. And part of the reason why is because he is so smart when it comes to the, the delivery of the content around diversity, equity, and inclusion. Now, one of the things that I heard, let's see, I'm trying to remember. It was another comedian, I believe it was Tina Fey, who said, <gasps> "Oh my god, know, that woman.
0: Oh, isn't she amazing?
1: Her. Oh yeah, she, she's amazing. Yeah,
0: she. Yeah. You know, you know the question that people ask, who you know, who are the four people you'd have at a dinner party if you mm, could. She yeah, yeah. is my number one.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. Yep. Well, and you know what I think is so important about what he said. So, so Tina Fey said that you know how smart someone is by what they laugh at. Yeah, I mean, she's fantastic. And when I heard that, the first comedian I thought of, I adore Tina Fey, but the next one I thought of uh, was Dave Chappelle because you really have to be, you know, on the edge of brilliant to even laugh at his jokes. You have to understand the nuances of it. You have to understand how race plays a part in all of it. You have to understand how, uh, you know, all the different aspects of diversity play into how funny this is and so you know for me I've been teaching I've been a professor or a lecturer in addition to my administrative role I've been a lecturer at George Washington University in DC for over 10 years and I've been teaching courses on intercultural campus leadership there which basically is talking about decision making for high level professionals with a backdrop of diversity and inclusion and so as I'm helping students to think critically about how they make decisions, I also uh, brought up a point of, you know, how seriously are we taking the work versus how seriously we're taking ourselves? And so I usually start out that 14 week semester with some type of vignette or conversation around a snippet from Dave Chappelle. Um, usually it's the Chappelle show, but now we have even more great um Great footage from, for example, his Mark Twain Award that that he received at the Kennedy Center. I think Netflix did an entire special on that. Um, But anyway, uh, there's lots of different um, vignettes that he's had that really exemplifies how ridiculous things like racism really are. Um, So I was just sharing earlier about you know thinking about picking any phenotype, anything that you visually see on a person, and using that as an entire way to structure a whole society. So if I look at someone and I realize, oh, this person has hazel eyes, I have hazel eyes. I am going to construct an entire society based on privileging people who have hazel eyes. We're going to be the best. We're going to be the people who make the most money. We're going to be the people who have the most access. We're going to be the ones who have the most power as the hazel eyed people. And anyone Mm -hmm. who is not hazel eyed are the people that don't get as much power, don't get as much opportunity, don't get as much privilege. And they're going to have to figure it out because we're the ones on top. That is the most ridiculous laughable thing I've ever heard of in my life. Isn't it? And, so it's, and that is exactly how uh, race and racism and racist systems in a country have been created, especially in the United States. Uh, we created an entire economy around race. And so given that, how ridiculous is that? Um, I was jokingly say, saying before, I'm a triathlete, which means I'm a cyclist, and I'm one of those cyclists that needs to work on their flexibility and so forth. I need to do yoga like every day for the rest of my life. Um, (laughs) So I have one leg that's a little bit longer than the other leg. So let's say Shauna decides everyone who has a left leg that's longer than the right leg, we're going to build an entire society based on us. We are the greatest of all time. That's (laughs) the most ridiculous stuff I've ever heard. But Someone, you know, many generations ago decided that that would be a great way to construct power, privilege, and and build an entire economy on top of it. And we're four, five, six hundred years later still trying to sort it out. That's where we are right now, especially in the United States.
0: I just, I mean, again, what you've just said, just... resonates so well with me like it makes me completely understand um where where we're at right now and but then it makes me go all right um five six hundred years ago who who actually sat down and went right something needs to happen and we need to make sure that we have some kind of system Like who do you know i mean like it's someone actually sat down and said this is a good idea (laughs) right right exactly
1: so someone sat down and and thought oh this is a good idea and i have no arbitrary way of of picking and choosing how to get the the resources that i need so i'm just going to do it by colors let's just do it yeah. by colors you know i'm like that is the most ridiculous thing i've ever heard of but it it still persists i
0: i've i've heard um and i think it may have been quite a few years ago about an experiment and i this is just like from chats that I've mm-hmm. had with people so I actually don't have any um uh anywhere where you can go to find it but I'm sure if you google it you can find anything right on google mm-hmm. but they they ran an experiment with um primary school kids and basically what you sort of talked about just before they mm-hmm. put all the white kids on one side of the room all the brown-eyed kids on the other side of the room or what have you yes and explain to them that the brown-eyed kids um are the good kids and the blue-eyed ones are the bad kids and they won't get mm-hmm. to go out for recess or lunch break or you know or whatever it was. Right, and right. it was it was a way of I guess educating kids but I mean mm-hmm. I mean obviously there'd be a lot more to that story because I don't know what the um mental and emotional ramifications would be of doing that to kids. So I think it was quite a few years ago but mm-hmm. yeah, when, yeah when you break it down it is really as simple as that how insane it is
1: <laughs> right right exactly well and you know um it so back uh this was in the 1950s so this wasn't that long ago um this was leading up to brown versus board of education at that time where you know this very test especially um there was one called the the doll test of course um which kind of posited two different dolls, a white identified doll and a black identified doll and children had to decide which one they thought was the most attractive or which one uh, was the smartest or which one. It, that that was so interesting to me because really it got us all to really think very clearly about how we have um, created self-hatred around blackness, um, how we categorize people in ways that are detrimental to their entire lives And so, you know, I think what's really important about that doll test was that that still even happens up to this day, especially in relation to race and colorism. I remember even as a child, and I'll be fully transparent with you, I'm 42 years old. And I remember, I think I was about five years old and my godparents gave me a African-American cabbage patch doll. And Mm -hmm. I had the biggest hissy fit at church that Sunday when they brought me that doll, because I did not want the African-American doll. I wanted the white baby doll at the time because in some way, shape or form, society had planted in me that white dolls were better, more expensive, more valuable than black dolls. Where did that come from? I have no clue. I I can imagine. I mean, I can go back into the research and, and kind of see where we've all been socialized in certain ways. But- I'm still living. I'm not that old. And that was still perpetuated then. And so we're still having those colorism conversations and it made sense to someone, which I think is fascinating. And so, you know, what does it mean to have to start categorizing by color? That's one question. But then the other question now, which I think is so profound is that I was noticing this as my sons were starting to go to pre-K. They went to a a private uh, pre-K. And during that time period, I noticed how my children where the minorities in the classroom in a very different way, not because of their blackness, but because they were very identifiable as black children, whereas other children in their classroom were multiracial and a little more difficult to identify or pigeonhole into a race, which I think is quite beautiful. And so given that you couldn't just look at a child and say, oh, that child is white. Oh, that child is black. Oh, that child is Latinx, what have you. You didn't quite know, which tells us that many of those children, and I've got to know their parents, so I do know this for a fact, uh, many of those parents were multiracial or in biracial relationships, marriages, et cetera, and produced children that were a little more ambiguous. Given that, the country, our country is gonna become more and more ambiguous, so what happens when the lines are blurred and a child looks at the two baby dolls and and they say, "Oh well, one baby doll represents my mother's race and another baby doll represents my dad's race." So I love them both. How about that? Mm. That really obliterates the entire test. And so you know, I think that's what's going to be really interesting now moving forward is that you know identities have, especially in the U.S., identities have been very, um, very neatly parsed. Mm. <laughs> in in real life, they're not neatly parsed. It's extremely I don't want to say messy because that sounds negative, but uh, more complex. And, uh, And I think that complexity makes us rethink how we approach race.
0: Yeah, it's literally not black and white.
1: There you go. Absolutely not. Absolutely. Yeah. There's so many shades, literally. Um, and mm-hmm. there's so many shades of thought when we think about this, you know, even colorism in other countries. So I, I think what's so profound about my work in higher ed is when I get to hear from students that are not American born, but they come to the United States to study and they have, they may have been in the majority group in their home country and they come here and magically are in a minority group. Mm-hmm. And it's a complete shift for them because they've gone from the privileged to the not privileged. And what does that mean as far as how they navigate the world?
0: Purely because the color of their skin. Absolutely. Absolutely. It can be color. It could be
1: nationality, ethnicity, uh, but yes, absolutely. They, they have now shifted um, in society in ways that they did not ask for, did not want, and did not anticipate, frankly. Mm.
0: Can I, so, uh, and you know, you and I have agreed that you know, no, no question is a stupid question. This is an opportunity to discuss Mm -hmm. and enlighten people. Um, Mm -hmm. for for me, for me personally, I love finding out about people. It's one of my passions, which I didn't, I didn't know it was, I guess, until I really started doing a podcast. Um, right. right. Yeah. Like I I feel like, you know, I've always done it, but now I just do it and actually record it. Um, (laughs) right, right. But, I walk into a room and one of my favorite things in the world to do is to walk into a room of strangers and find out as much as I can about as many people as I can as well. Um, and, and I would walk into a room and one of the questions that I might possibly ask someone of of colour is, mm-hmm. what, what is your background? Because mm-hmm. I'm fascinated to learn about that and I'm fascinated to learn about their history, their culture, everything. However, mm-hmm. I've also sort of been informed that that could be a really triggering question. What's your Mm, response to that?
1: Oh, that's good. That's good. Well, you know, what I appreciate about the question is that, you know, you're asking the question with the anticipation that the person can actually respond fully to your question.
0: Oh, my gosh. Yep. And,
1: and, and so I think that's the, the challenge that, um, you know, with many African Americans is that many of us, unless we've gone through some type of DNA testing or so forth to really trace our background or even our family trees, we would love to be able to answer that question. But many of us are not. So, for example, I've traced enough, but not not enough in my opinion, uh, but I've traced enough to know that, you know, I'm originally from Southern Virginia. I've traced back as far as I can on my family tree. I have, um, I've been blessed to have all of my grandparents live at least to their 80s. Um, my um, my most recent grandmother to pass, she passed back in April and she was 91. Uh, my other grandmother who's still living, who I just spoke to this morning is 94. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, Wow. Yeah, yeah. And so I look, I, I'm going to be in the 80s age group at Kona. Just just get ready, because I'm. that's where I'm going to be. And so, <laughs> you know, I, I try to talk to um, talk to them a lot about, you know, reconstructing the family tree, especially for the sake of the boys to remember their names and namesakes and so forth. And what's so profound about that is. When I trace that as far back as I could, yes, I'm originally from Southern Virginia. Yes, I can trace us back to Browns Island, where a slave ship brought some of my ancestors there. But I can't tell you the names of them. All I can tell you is that we have a receipt for a certain number of "quote unquote" Negroes that were bought or purchased at that stop, and that's all I can give you for right now. And it pains me wow. not not because your question is invalid or not important, but it pains many of us as African Americans because there is no, um, there, there isn't as much of a paper trail of who we are, you know, even when it comes to birth certificates, death certificates, um, for my grandparents that I mentioned before, who recently passed, um, even for them, and this is not that long ago, many of them did not have birth certificates themselves. So my grandfather, who I mentioned before, who passed when my youngest son was a few days old, he did not have a birth certificate until he was drafted into the U.S. Army, And when he was drafted into the army, they had to create a birth certificate from him and the dates and years for that birth certificate were actually taken from the family Bible where most, where a lot of African-Americans will actually document the the births and maybe who might've been the midwife to help to birth that child. And so given that he wasn't really even born with the birth certificate and we um, weren't even sure of his real birth year when he passed, we just made a very good guess at it based on um, some, some handwriting in a Bible. So, Given that you're asking a really valid question, but um, many African-Americans who are not equipped to answer that question, that may be the reason why it's so triggering. So, you know, imagine, for example, uh, and I'm using this as a very trivial analogy. I'm, I'm looking at my son's fish tank right, right now. Imagine, <laughs> that, you know, imagine that I went down to Petco to purchase four or five beta fish and I have a receipt that says four or five betas on it. Well, it doesn't say that one of them was named Cleopatra. One of them was named Jones. You know, it doesn't say that. It just says that I have a receipt for four living creatures. That's it. And that's you know the elementary school version of what happened at Browns Island for my family is that they have a receipt of a few uh, of the number of a few human beings that they purchased as property. And that's all I have at this moment. Now, if I do a little more genealogy work, I might be able to give you more, but it's pretty faint, painful to say that really I don't know much other than a receipt that my family has from Browns Island. So that's why that question can be a little
0: triggering. Wow. Uh, okay. Wow. Here you're processing. your uh, process. You're your processing. I am. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, because to be honest, I think I had a, a sort of a general idea of why it could be triggering, but I don't think I've really... Process it, like you said. Yeah. it's, um, Right? Okay. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Great question. I really like that question
0: because yeah, just,
1: people yeah, know. So. You know, they they wouldn't imagine. You know, why would this be a difficult question to answer? Well, you know, it 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 gives the. You know, let's go back to our language around privilege. It gives the privilege. It highlights the privilege that some folks have of even being able to trace their backgrounds. You know, it's a privilege to be able to say that I'm eight generations removed from Thomas Jefferson or you know whatever it is you know many of us don't have that privilege of being able to trace that far back
0: yeah and it uh, yeah and it's hard obviously hard to know who you are when you don't know your history
1: Mm, that's it yeah Um, yeah yeah absolutely
0: I feel extremely privileged to be able to tell these kinds of stories and, and the stories that we've already told and hopefully the stories that we get to tell in the future as well. So if you appreciate this kind of content, then please consider supporting WitsUp by becoming a WitsUp member. Just head on over to patreon.com WitsUp or simply click the link in the description of this episode. The words come up quite a few times in this conversation. Obviously, the word "black" that that is mm-hmm. the word, that we, the the term that we use because not everyone is African American. When right, mm-hmm. It, mm-hmm. yeah, is that so? That's correct. Absolutely,
1: yeah. So so when I use when I use the term "black," I oftentimes use it as a blanket, um, a blanket label, if you will for anyone that comes from the black diaspora. So as we know with the slave trade and and lots of different historical issues concerning the disbursement of black people, well, Mm -hmm. you may have black people that are from Jamaica and black people that are in the UK and black people wherever. And so given that, yes, I identify as African-American because I know that I was born here, However, another black person may identify as black, may have been a naturalized citizen or maybe a second or third generation American um, and they can trace their roots back to at least another country. Um, And so given that I have a a wonderful friend of mine who is uh, originally from Ecuador, but identifies as Afro-Cuban because he phenotypically identifies as black. He does come from the black diaspora, but he also is an American citizen. And so that's just one example of the way to more broadly speak to blackness um, and African-Americans can be a subset of blackness.
0: Right, okay. Yep. Great question.
1: Uh, thank you. <laughs> you're, you're you're forcing me into professor mode here. I didn't think I was going there. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I did say, I don't know exactly where this will go. We we both love a tangent. I uh, wanna, absolutely. And, and I love that you just said, forcing you into professor mode because I, I'd love to find out at what point did this become what what you do, what you speak about, yeah. what you almost have become an expert on? Do you remember a moment in your life where you kind of said, enough is enough, I want to be mm. able to educate? Um, because part of your role as a, as a, and correct me if I'm wrong, but part of your role as a speaker is uh, working with companies and helping them with diversity as, as well. Is that right?
1: Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And, and... You know, I kind of you know we love a good story, right? So this this is another one. Brace yourself, brace yourself. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, but yeah, so um, as as I was coming out of grad school, I started a position as the um, executive director of a nonprofit organization called Project Transformation, and it was at a large public institution in Virginia, and it really provided me this great opportunity to do a lot of campus ministry work with students who wanted to do a lot of in the community, and so. Mm-hmm. I did that for a couple of years, and then eventually with a nonprofit, obviously, sometimes grant money runs out, and you got to figure out what you're going to do, and I knew that as much as my heart was in that work, I was about to start my doctoral work, and I said, I've got to work while I'm still in my doctoral program. I I don't have a graduate assistantship. How am I going to make this work? And so I ended up uh, putting in an application for another position at another institution at a, a university. And I didn't think I was gonna get this job. I mean, I applied with desperation, trust and believe. And um, I applied for the position and before I could even submit the resume, uh, the very next morning I had three voicemails waiting for me saying, hey, we wanna bring you up. Can you make the the hour drive up for this interview? And I'm yeah. thinking to myself, oh, I don't know, maybe. Uh, and so I kind of got harassed into coming up for this interview and I was so glad that I did uh, because this Dean of Students, um, offered me the job within the next 24 hours. And so this job was as the associate director, so the number two um, of a multicultural center that was called the James Farmer Multicultural Center. And this is a little homework for folks, Uh, Google James Farmer. James Mm -hmm. Farmer was a professor at the University of Mary Washington, but he was also the chief coordinator of the Freedom Rides, um, especially during Dr. King's time. And so Dr. Farmer was a prolific professor at the university and he had recently passed. And so they named the multicultural center that was designed to serve students after Dr. Farmer. Well, I ended up getting into this role and, you know, I, I thought i spoke or I, I at least think to this day I spoke relatively eloquently on <laughs> development theory and you know how students really develop in a higher ed environment. But I wasn't really strong on diversity and inclusion work when it comes to the actual scholarship around diversity. And so I get there. I'm hired as associate director. I've been told that we're looking forward to the director coming back from FMLA. She had recently had her, her first son. And three weeks into my role as associate director, I got the notice that, hey, the director is not coming back she's going to be a stay-at-home mother. So congratulations, you're now the new director of the Multicultural Center. And I'm like, wait a minute, what? I I am like (laughs) a prepared person to be the director of anything right now. I came here because I thought I was going to be following really strong leadership. And so um, I had to learn on the fly a lot of the scholarship around diversity, equity, and inclusion. And so, you know, a lot of people think, well, You know, if you come from a minoritized population, if you're a woman, if you're a person of color, you probably are equipped to run a multicultural center, and that is the furthest thing from the truth. Mm. Lots of you do have lots of personal experiences, and you know you can speak to your own experience as an undergraduate student of color. But that doesn't mean that you know the scholarship and the theory around um, organizations that need to be more inclusive, or that you know even how to educate other people on diversity and inclusion. And it's truly an art to both educating students on this work, but then also educating faculty. Faculty have PhD, they have terminal degrees, they're an expert in their craft. And for some reason people think that, you know I'm just picking on someone, just because you have a PhD in chemistry, that does not mean that you're equipped to be a chief diversity officer or equipped mm-hmm. to lead others in your department around diversity and inclusion issues. And so given that I really had to up my game on a lot of things as it pertains to terminology, reading lists, you know, I basically educated myself on the fly. um, And it was one of the best experiences ever for me to kind of um, fail forward in many ways to grow in those ways. And So so I did that for quite a few years and loved my role as associate uh, director of that center. After that, um, I got engaged, we were about to get married. And at that time, uh, my husband was from Baltimore originally. And so he was working um, in a government contract position, which meant that Even though we're in Northern Virginia, we truly just weren't that close to his job, especially given the Northern Virginia commute. It is classic. I mean, everybody across the country knows how difficult um, the DMV traffic is here. And so uh, we moved into the area. I applied for a position um, at the flagship institution in Maryland. And once again, a stretch position, a position I didn't think I was qualified for. Mm -hmm. It ended up being another associate director position of a multicultural center that provided academic support for students. And so um, what was great for me in that role was that I got to apply the diversity and inclusion work that I learned at the previous institution. I applied it there as a supervisor at a much larger institution. And I was also learning how to assess whether diversity and inclusion programming was actually working or not, because you can say all day we're running this program or we're doing this Mm -hmm. event. Can we actually measure that something is effective? Um, And so I thought that was really um, the fun part of my work and I spent 10 years at that flagship before I came into my current position as an assistant provost.
0: Wow, and I think uh, you nailed it just, I mean, you nailed the whole thing obviously, but towards the end um, (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, Mm -hmm. in terms of you can't just say that this is what we're doing. uh, You you need to make sure that it is effective and I feel like too many times it just seems like um, companies Perhaps are just ticking a box, like, th- yep, we've got mm. this program, but is it effective? Are we actually instigating change from this program?
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, absolutely. Well, and you know that. <laughs> so go- going back to what you were mentioning, as far as uh, consulting work and things that I do on my own, as far as contracts are concerned, I mm-hmm. do have a lot of organizations, whether they're in higher ed or or not. Um, And they come seeking out my support for lots of different things as it relates to their consulting needs. So whether it's um, coming in to educate their faculty or coming in to educate their staff, et cetera. And one of the things that I've uh, made very clear is that, you know, I I have very limited time, obviously, um, especially working as a full time administrator and as a parent. Um, But one of the things that I share with them up front is that I don't do the what I call the the silver bullet contracts. And what that means is they're expecting me to come in and do a workshop for an hour and then all of our race and gender <laughs> and sexual orientation issues and everything else will be solved in an hour. Yeah, I'm not a magician. I do not have a magic wand. No, that is not at all how this works. And so, you know, I can kind of tell, and you know, there, what I think is really telling is when let's say, for example, someone calls me and they say they want me to come in and do a celebratory event, whether it's a, um, giving the Martin Luther King lecture or, you know, whatever it may be. And I asked the question, how is this annual event, how does that fit into your strategic plan for diversity for your entire organization? Mm -hmm. And if you don't have an overarching plan that this fits into, then I'm probably going to say no. If you have a larger plan and I can plug into your big system, then I'm happy to do so. But, you know, I think that, it's unrealistic for both parties to expect that it's going to be a genuine exchange. And it's yeah. also going to be an effective exchange. If you have, if you're bringing someone in, we've been calling it um, in the literature, this uh, glass cliff leaders. Um, I was reading about it a couple of nights ago where you hire someone, whether they're full-time, part-time, one-time you hire them and you put those, put them on this glass cliff where it seems as if they have a lot of power and responsibility to, salvage something that seems to be impossible. So it's kind of like me hiring you to be the captain of the Titanic. I <laughs> know the ship is sinking. I know that this is not going well, but I'm gonna put this faith and responsibility on you as a minorita- minoritized person, whether you're a woman, whether you're a person of color, etc. I'm putting the onus upon you to turn this whole ship around. And that's a heavy burden to carry. Little bit. Yeah, yeah, it's a heavy burden to carry. And so I try not to set myself up for failure, because that's how you end up having unrealistic expectations. And then, you know, I, I jokingly say all the time, especially when it comes to Black History Month celebrations, I always say, look, President Obama, Oprah, and Black Jesus could all show up and give this keynote, and it still would not meet your expectations, because you are not clear on how strategically racism, -racism, anti-racism, all of that work plays into your organization. You could have the most prolific people on the planet. And if you're not clear on what your overarching plan, your long-term plan is, this still is not going to work.
0: Absolutely. And that circles back to almost the start of our conversation in that I don't want what we're trying to do with WitsUp to just be a tweet or an Instagram post or just this one conversation. I want to be able to make some real long-lasting, well, forever-lasting changes to what we're trying to, to achieve. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, if you don't have that kind of mindset, it is just lip service.
1: Hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. And 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 you know that's what I'm not interested in. And so you know now what's what's really profound to me and what I love to see is you're exactly right. I'm really really busy um, for a number of reasons, societally and otherwise. But I think what's really profound about right now is that I can immediately tell whether someone's reaching out to contact me because they are responding to the critical incidences that are going on in the country or whether reaching out because this was already in motion and now is great timing and so you know I I think that's a big difference between the two types of organizations
0: yeah right see it's funny and I was um I was thinking about this before we um caught up this morning or evening your time and Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um I look to be completely transparent with you what when the well the black lives matter movement 2.0 as you called it uh, started mm-hmm. happening i i just had this um pang of guilt that i hadn't even considered it um mm-hmm. and then i obviously and i don't want and it, i don't want this to be a oh i'm a white you know middle-aged woman with guilt around racism because that's not what it is but it was that guilt that triggered um action for me mm, um, right right yeah, and I feel like that's a good thing, and I feel like it's um, you know these feelings sort of come up and start boiling up f- for a very valid reason, and it's whether you listen to them and do something about it or kind of mm-hmm. ignore them. And um, uh, to be honest, it's taken me a little while to sort of figure out what kind of direction or what kind of action we need to to take from a from a personal point of view, like even in our own home, to a yeah. you know, company point of view as well. Um, mm-hmm. And I. I was feeling, again, guilty about it, but now I feel I feel good about it because I've actually stopped and listened and and I'm trying to learn as opposed to just, I don't know, for want of a better term, jumping on a bandwagon and just trying to be seen to be doing the right thing. Um, yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, we're just yeah. doing yeah. the right
0: things behind the scenes and trying mm-hmm. to make a difference. Um, but currently, you know, I don't need to... You know, brag about what I'm, what we're trying to do. We're actually yeah. doing it and trying to do it.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, and you know, I think that's what's what's powerful. I think um, all of the conversations are running together about um, equity and inclusion these days. Sure. But I do remember someone uh, mentioning to me—I think it was this morning—saying, um, "You know, what do we do about white guilt?" Right. What do we yeah. do about the folks that are, that are not part of the black community um, who identify as white, whether you're white American or otherwise, and the guilt of either not doing anything up to this point or not being aware up to this point or um, not valuing black voices or, or minoritized voices up until this point. Mm. And so you know, what I think is very curious about that is um, acknowledgement doesn't necessarily have to turn into guilt, if you will. Um, and so what I mean by that is, you know, yes, we should acknowledge it, but let's not give too much power to the guilt because what ends up happening is that it becomes cyclical where we can't break out of that cycle. Absolutely. And so we, we sit in the guilt and then we continue We continue what we were doing before we were aware. We continue with the do nothing because we're kind of frozen in this place of, yep. oh my God, I'm not quite sure what to do. Um, as As a white person who's sitting in my white guilt, I haven't um, released myself to make mistakes and fail forward to even try. So, you know, we just sit there and, you know, we end up perpetuating what we're guilty about even happening, you know? And so, I, you know, it becomes this cycle. And so, um, you know, my hope is that, you know, folks don't get stuck in the white guilt because that doesn't free folks up to be allies. I think what would be more important would be, um, you know, Yes, there might be white guilt for a period of time, but once you realize that you have white privilege, now, what do we do with it? right?, yep. what do we do with it in ways that are fruitful and you know unfortunately, um, there's been kind of this hijack of what being an ally means to particular communities, so it's kind of like you know zero to sixty either do mm-hmm. nothing or do everything. we got to go march on washington d c and you know all these up we got to protest every weekend and make a sign and all these other things when mm-hmm. in fact Allyship is lots of different micro actions that happen every single day that build up to a lot. So, you know, if you are the white woman that just walked into the coffee shop and there happens to be a black person standing there looking at the menu and the barista calls on you first, you just deferring to say, hey, have you made sure that this other person who happens to be black has been served? That, in and of itself, is one small snippet of what allyship looks like on a continuous basis all the time everywhere. Now, once we get to a place where we identify those moments where we can be allies, I think that's what's crucial. But I think the the white guilt kind of keeps people, it, it, it runs an interference on people that need to be flexing their allyship muscles a little bit more.
0: I am sitting here nodding my head. At- <laughs> Yep. Um, agreeing, obviously, with everything that you're saying and I'm writing things down. And one of the things you just said was fail forward. And I, I think it's such a brilliant term. Um, it's something, I guess, without even realising, I've probably done my entire life, have not been scared to take that leap and just go out and do things, uh, whether it be starting my own business or moving from my home in Tasmania to Melbourne. Um And, Mm -hmm. and, and it, and it's cliched, but you know, like they always say, cliches is that for a reason, but Mm -hmm. we learn from our failures and we move, as long as we move forward with them. Um, Yeah. 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 I I find that, that fascinating. Um, We've been going for a little while. Have you got maybe just another 10 minutes up your sleeve or do you need to go? I'm
1: good. I'm good. I'm good for another 10. Yeah.
0: Excellent. Thank you. Um, So. And obviously, we could continue to talk for so long. Um, <laughs> Absolutely, uh, but being a um, triathlon um, platform, I'm I'm really interested in you know as a, as an educator and as part of uh, as part of what you do um, going into companies and trying to change things there. How how does triathlon fit in the scheme of things for you in terms of um and i wouldn't have recognized them in in the past but i've started learning in the last few months Mm, i mm -hmm. imagine triathlon um has a few barriers for black people to to get involved
1: Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely i could um yet again another dissertation that i could write or book i could write <laughs> um you know about triathlon in general you know um and and I don't want to go too far into the stereotypical stuff but I I do want to give you what I've observed as someone who is black who is a triathlete uh but also you know who kind of studies this thing yeah um that you know in my experience so I'm going into my 6th or 7th season as a triathlete so not very long um but you know I've competed on various levels whether it's a community 5k or whether it's um an Ironman level event and, um, what I think it's pretty profound about that is there's been many times where i found myself in a field of 2025 and I was one of maybe 10, uh, athletes of color there, um, mm-hmm. specifically, uh, 10 or less, uh, black triathletes. And so, uh, you know, given that, I think that's a, a major concern to really think through is why is that exactly? Why is yeah. that? Um, and, you know, it's not that it's bad. Um, it's it's not that it's bad to um, look around um, and notice where you are. But, you know, I've, I've had white people to criticize me to say, why were you even counting? And my response back oh. is, if I can count, there's not enough. Oh, and so, great
0: response. You know,
1: as a, as, I mean, as a white person, if you looked around, you know, if, if you were to notice whiteness at a race, you wouldn't count because you already know that you're going to be represented there. Whereas for a black person you know, especially in the black triathlete community, you know, we communicate with each other to find out, you know, who all's going to this particular event and, you know, can we meet up for this or let's have dinner beforehand. And, you know, we're, we're very supportive of each other. And so, you know, I think what's interesting is, you know, we have to look at the full cycle of what are the barriers and, and we know many of the barriers. Um, one of them is one that I've been working on for years, which is specifically around uh, my experience selfishly um, is around swimming. Mm-hmm. The- are very systemic barriers that are historical around the lack of black swimmers. Um, I happen to live now um, in, in the DMV area and I just recently moved from the Prince George's County area. And in Prince George's County, which is overwhelmingly African-American, of course we have all black swim teams there. But mm. that's the anomaly, that's not, that's mm. not the, the norm. Um, and in fact, if you go, you know, a generation or two back, if you talk to their parents or their grandparents, they probably don't know how to swim. And part of that is because of the historical reasons in the country.
0: And and sorry to interrupt. Um, and there is that, that phrase, which is horrible that it's even a phrase, but, uh, black people can't swim is, Mm -hmm. is Mm -hmm. a result of the systemic issue right? Because mm-hmm, it, it's mm-hmm. been a privilege to be able to go to a pool or right, right, you know, to spend right. time at the beach or, or whatever. Is that, is, is as simple as that? Well, not obviously oh, simple. Oh my but- goodness.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, the, it, fortunately it is a stereotype. There are lots of black people mm-hmm. who swim. And in fact, you know, even if we look historically at um, swimming amongst black people and going back to our whole defining what black is, you know, in mm-hmm. the African diaspora, you know, there were many slaves who learned how to swim during the crossing. So, you know, given that or they had to swim out of necessity to save their own lives and their families lives. And so, you know, we do come from stock of swimmers and divers. But again, let's look back in United States history and particularly when we're looking at Jim Crow. And what does that mean as far as when Jim Crow sets up an entire system where Black people don't have access to swimming pools? They don't have access to, um, let's say, for example, housing in residential areas that are on waterfronts, for example. Um, Mm -hmm. there's even an area here in Maryland where it used to be the only stretch of beach that was accessible for black folks. And so, you know, given that there's been structural barriers and I'll give you one for, for those that think this is ancient history, it's not. And I'll give you the example of it. Mm -hmm. So um, my mother is still living. I'm 42 years old. My mother is in her mid sixties and we had a YMCA in my hometown in that at that YMCA, when my mother was small, Yes, they did allow black people to swim, but they were only allowed to swim on a certain night on a certain day of the week. Mm. That day of the week happened to be on Wednesdays. Why was that systemic racism? Because whoever was responsible for the pool, and I'm I'm not indicting the YMCA or any of that, you know, all of that's a, a local decision, but whoever was responsible for making the schedule chose a night that the majority of black people could not or would not swim because in the South, on Wednesday night, we go to church. We go oh. to Bible study. And so given that we would go to choir rehearsal, all those things that are part of the the church um, the church environment and, and the community. And so given that, no, we're not going to swim on a Wednesday night because church comes first. And so given that, that's how a lot of people within my mother's generation and even through my own generation, we didn't necessarily learn how to swim because even the smallest access to pools was set up in a way that there was a barrier to created for us. And so given that, that's much of the reason why we haven't learned how to swim. Also too, you know, when it comes to even higher education, there are many campuses, campus communities that have pools on their campuses. My last check, there's only one or two left in the entire country um, where there are historically black colleges and universities that actually even have a functioning pool on their campus, much less a swim team. So given that we have lots of work to do as it pertains to accessibility of pools. And so that has perpetuated, um, I, I won't say that black people can't swim. Of course we can when given mm. the opportunity, but do we have the opportunity to swim? Mm. And when we don't have the opportunity to swim, then we end up with drownings and all issues that mm. me. I mean, I sit and cry every time I hear another story during the summer months about another black child drowning. Um, and so that was part of the reason why I learned how to swim um my oldest son um when i was pregnant with my youngest son he jumped into um jumped into the 8 foot side of a pool at a hotel that we were staying at fortunately their dad knows how to swim like a fish but mommy was internally screaming watching this because i didn't know how to swim at the time oh goodness I made it up to myself that it would never be the case ever again that i would go anywhere with my sons and not be the lifeguard for them so mm-hmm. you know, given that now my sons they both swim like fish too they don't need mommy <laughs> But the the point being, you know, that, you know, when the systemic racism that puts these barriers up continues and people don't understand it, it turns into a victim blaming game that, oh, black people don't know how to swim. Black people don't want to know how to swim. We do want to know how to swim and we can swim given the opportunity. But when Mm. every barrier is set up against us, then how do we make this work? And so that's part of the reason why, you know, I went through you know, I went through USA swimming and, you know, got the certifications and everything because lots of folks were coming to me saying, Shauna, we see you swimming. We see you doing triathlon. I was doing long distance swimming at the time where I was doing three milers and five milers and so forth. And they were saying, we want to come to you. I kept directing them to other swim coaches, but they wanted a black swim coach mm. and at that. I can't blame them for for wanting that comfort um, especially when they're talking about their children, but especially as adults who I think have multiple additional barriers because children are are fancy free. you know my my mm. oldest son jumped into the eight foot side with with <laughs> with no hesitation, but I work with adults who um they're afraid to put their face in the water in the shower standing up. So you know they' are very different uh, barriers as it pertains to adult swimmers that are beginners,
0: and it's not something that just gets fixed overnight, is it? Oh my gosh, no, absolutely it's... not. Well, yeah, yeah. You're, you're
1: right on target with that. I mean, you know, it, there's so many pieces to that puzzle of accessibility. I know we're just talking about swimming right now. We could talk yeah. about lots of other barriers, but, you know, the accessibilities to pools, the affordability of pools, mm-hmm. the affordability of open water swimming. I mean, I'm blessed and fortunate enough that, you know, I can pay for a gym membership and go to an indoor pool, but I also can afford to pay to go to um, outdoor um, open water swimming with a coach who happens to be an English channel swimmer. So I can afford that because of my station in life. Mm. Well, what people who can't afford that gym membership or can't afford to pay the, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 bucks to do an open water swim. Mm. What does it mean for them? Because it, it, I, I remember reading a, it was either a master's thesis or a dissertation specifically around um, the lack of swim skills amongst African-Americans being its own health pandemic. That this is this is a health disparity. It's and I equate swimming to knowing how to brush your teeth or tie your your shoes. This is something that everyone should know how to do. And I'm not saying that you need to cross the English Channel, but I am saying that you should be able to. um, You should definitely be able to tread. I even know triathletes that don't know how to tread, by the way. Um, Mm -hmm. But I think you should at least be able to tread and get to safety um, in a calm, uh, non-anxious manner. And a lot of people cannot do that.
0: Yeah. Far out. It, yeah. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm so aware that we've gone over time, which doesn't, <laughs> that's all right. <laughs> but I, I do. I just, I just want to, I mean, I'm pretty sure we're going to have another chat pretty soon. Any, Anyway, to cover off so many other things, but
1: absolutely. We've got a long list to talk about here. <laughs> I think
0: so. But one thing I do, I do just want to ask you before we go is obviously I have a platform that is dedicated to women in triathlon and women in sport. Um, it's, mm-hmm. um, it's my way of discussing so many different things, obviously just outside of triathlon as well. And I look mm-hmm. at what's happening in the world right now, and I think, how do I, how do I use my platform to make a difference? And part of me is like, well, you know, triathlon mm. is such a niche sport. Uh, women in triathlon is even nicher, um, mm-hmm. right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. And, and then I think, well. Does my could my platform make a difference at all? Ah, uh, for example, are Black people even interested in being a part of triathlon, or do am I just is that just a white privileged thing of me saying you know thinking triathlon can solve all problems because it's helped solve problems, <laughs> for many, but my mental health. Right. But you right, did right. say earlier that triathlon kind of saved your mental health, um, or, mm-hmm. swim, or swimming, starting with swimming and then moving on to triathlon helped with yeah. your keeping your mental health um, mm-hmm. at, a good, at a good level. Is is that an easy question to answer?
1: Oh, that's that's a good one. That's a good one. Well, I I will say that I when when you say you know this is a niche and would other black triathletes, tri, triathletes of color, triathletes from LGBT populations, whoever. Um, how would they um, how how would they respond? And I, I would say, you know, you have a fantastic and very strong platform to engage those folks. And the reason why I say that is because you know I could rattle off a list right now of twenty people <laughs> who are people of color who would be interested in talking about how triathlon has either affected their life or completely changed their life. And so, you know, and, and given that coming from all walks of life, I'm thinking about, um, for example, uh, Colonel Yvonne Spencer, who is a um, United States Air Force colonel, which we all know who founded Fast Chicks, my um, my national uh, triathlon club. We could talk to um, we could talk to Heather Tony, who is a uh, environmental activist who also is a 70.3 Ironman athlete. You know, I, I could go down the list of folks, and she was also um, the the youngest mayor for in Oxford, Mississippi, who was the youngest Black female mayor, for example, and has been heavily in politics and served in President Obama's uh, cabinet, if you will, as an advisor. So, you know, I could go down the list of folks that I think would be um, strong voices, mm-hmm. how triathlon... Um, could have even possibly saved their lives on lots of different things. Um, I think what's, what's interesting about um, black triathletes is that we major in um, and I don't want to speak for a whole community, but I just want to say what I've observed. I've observed black triathletes who have juggled life and they go to triathlon for peace and they don't want to go to a race and be bothered and harassed. They want to be part of the community. They want to be part of those that you assume will cross the finish line. They want to be the people who you assume that they're going to finish. You know, I I have a great friend of mine who is actually um, in the U.S. Army, and she's serving um, on a base in Alaska right now. And she finished um, her Ironman. And while she was on the run during her Ironman, a man looked at her and asked her a question because he thought that she was a volunteer when she was an athlete as a black woman. And so given that it continues to happen. And so my, my goal here is, you know, just to, to underline and say, yes, absolutely. There are black voices that want to speak to triathlon and how, uh, how it's impacted them as human beings. Um, number one. Um, but also too, I think, you know, it humanizes who we are as people because triathlon is part of our big story, right? You know, so for our, Black people, especially for those of us who had major health issues, um, one of the things, and again, I'm not a health expert, but we do know that there are social determinants of health in the United States, and many of them are related to socioeconomic status, to race, to systemic racism in particular cities, environment, etc. So, mm-hmm. imagine talking to many athletes who happen to be black who have fought the what I call the battle of the bulge. That's definitely me. Who. Mm-hmm. Lost 80 pounds as she became a you know a half- Ironman, if you will, or someone who had high blood pressure and literally ran away from their high blood pressure. So you know, those are folks that you want to talk to, because Triathlon has either affected their lives, changed their lives completely, or gave them their lives back. Mm-hmm. You know, I have a friend of mine I'm thinking about my friend John, um, who lost I, I think it's over I know it's over 100 pounds, but it may have been 150 pounds that he lost. And now he's an endurance athlete and he's a major contributor to society. And he's um, this wonderful pastor and father and and husband and all these wonderful things. And he can give you that story of how triathlon changed his life, even as we face racism within, around and through the sport. So my I I guess that's a resounding yes. uh, But, you know, I, I do think that there are many voices that you would like to hear
0: definitely it's so many things that you've said today um i think about the reasons why i launched wits up um you know a decade mm. ago and it's because i saw some inequalities in terms of women being involved in the sport and i think from yeah. my my point of view i can look at you know those reasonings um and ways that i've got gone about certain things and almost and i, I don't want to compare but translate some of those learnings into um, helping getting more Black people involved in the sport that we love and has, you know, helped us in our life. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Well, and, you know, I think that's where, you know, getting those voices out there, because even as someone who's been part of the, the Black triathlon community for, you know, six, seven years now, um, you know, I'm even discovering folks that Oh, this black person went to Kona twice. I didn't even know they existed. Or yeah. oh, this person has been an endurance athlete or this person has been a marathon swimmer that's crossed the channel several times or you know, finding out about our own community is extremely important. And so um you're you're reminding me of the movie Hidden Figures, you know, where <laughs> my oh. my are very much into STEM and all that. Um but it's it's making me think about those folks that are in triathlon who are those hidden figures that you may not even know exist but they've been out there for years. And I think it's important to get their voices and their names out there. Um, I'm even wondering if there's even been a, a history of some sort of of Black folks in triathlon. But I think it's important to amplify their voices. Um, you know, and, and I'm thinking about intersections too. Like, you know, yeah, we want to hear the voices of Black triathletes, but what about the Black LGBT community? I can think of seven people right off the top of my head right now who would love to speak to that and the nuances of that. Um, so, you know, given all of that, there, there's so many opportunities to amplify voices.
0: Well, that is our goal for sure, and um, I just I'm blown blown away with our conversation in in all the, in all. Uh, I was going to say in all the good ways, but like it <laughs> me, but it has given me such a you know, um, a po- it's been such a positive start to my day because it's you've you've given me some realistic things to think about and s- actions to sort of go out there and try to actually start making a change and not just make this about lip service and just jumping on the bandwagon. I really want to help make a difference.
1: Mm, well, and I love your approach. And, you know, this is what I'm going to go back into professor mode one more time. <laughs> um, but, you know, what What you're saying is so profound because it's um, what we call intent versus impact is that, you know, we have a lot of people who have good intentions, but they're not quite sure where to start. Um, and so what would be the impact of amplifying voices? And I think when people come with an authentic perspective, even if it's a brand new awakening. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't want people like you who have a fantastic platform to hesitate in moving forward, really pay no attention and don't care what other people think if if they're critiquing you for amplifying the voices of those that have been silenced for so long. So, you know, go out there with a, you know, I'm gonna conquer the world type of spirit. And I think, you know, you're really embodying an opportunity to be a true ally to black athletes, Black triathletes, black endurance athletes, um, in a way that, you know, we need and support. And I'm so appreciative of, you know, if if black people only talk to other black people, then that's how we never uh, come from behind those shadows. Um, and so I I feel strongly that yes, we should talk to each other, but yes, we should really talk. I mean, who would have thought that I would be talking to someone in Melbourne right now um, (laughs) from my cushy air-conditioned home here in Maryland? Um, but I think that's important and I know other people can do the same um if we partner together.
0: Absolutely, Shauna, you are one incredible human being.
1: Oh, thank you so much. Well, you, look, you are incredible for even having this idea, and you know, having the uh, the bandwidth to be able to actually amplify voices. So you're like the the megaphone here now. That uh, you get to make sure that everybody is on high volume, okay. um, and the folks that that have been on on low vo- volume or silence, they get to be heard. So I'm just appreciative for the opportunity. <laughs>
0: Well, it's funny, you're not the only person who has referred to me as a megaphone. Uh, even my <laughs> own father has. In in, ah. in in his speech at my wedding, I think something came up about me being a loudmouth. But let's hope that it's a loudmouth for all the right reasons.
1: For all the right reasons. Look, somebody has to do it. Look, it's, it's got to be somebody's job. And you're doing a great job at amplifying those voices. I really appreciate it.
0: Oh, thank you so, so much for your time. <laughs> I'll let you get back to uh, your kids. I'm sure they've built something, awesome. built a fort out of God knows what. There you go.
1: There uh, you go. Or yeah. All the snacks will be missing when I go to grab something to eat. One of the two. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Thanks for tuning in, hit subscribe, give us a rating, leave a comment and don't forget if you're not already a Wits Up member, sign up in the link in the description. But above all else, keep yourselves knee deep in awesomeness.